So we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 17 today, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 16. It says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So when I was growing up, I loved uh, aquariums. And uh, I had a number of aquariums. I had a saltwater aquarium, had freshwater aquariums. Uh, Believe it or not, when I, at one point, I had a 125-gallon tank and a 75-gallon tank in my bedroom. It was very loud and very humid, but for some reason, I enjoyed that. So I had all these fish tanks, and I was pretty good at keeping these aquariums. I knew how to clean them. I knew the things that they needed, knew how to feed them, knew how to take care of them. And the fish that I had usually did pretty well. So when I went to seminary, left home, uh, I kind of moved away from having fish tanks. I didn't have the time or the space to, to have them anymore. Um, and then for several years, I didn't have them. Then about a year and a half uh, ago, my wife's cousin was moving away, and they were kind of trying to downsize, and so they asked if we would want this 20-gallon fish tank, and it had, you know, a little goldfish in it. And so this kind of got my interest again, started to get me interested in aquariums again. And I thought to myself, well, I could, I could take this fish, I mean, it needs a home, and so I thought I better do something nice and take this fish. So I get this aquarium, and I'm all excited to have an aquarium again. And so then I think to myself, well, it needs a friend. I mean, I can't have the fish all alone there, all, all by itself all day. So I went to the store and got him another goldfish. And so I cleaned the tank, did everything I knew to how to take care of the tank. But within a few weeks, the fish that I was given was dead. So then there's one fish left, this goldfish that I had purchased, so then that fish got sick, so then I went to the pet store and got some medicine, and it had this miraculous healing, it got better. So then I'm like, well, I can't leave this one alone, so I better get some more. 
So I go to the store and I buy these little minnows that they say were, were good with uh, goldfish. So I buy five of these minnows. And I'm resolved, like, I'm going to make sure everything is perfect in this tank. So I get an extra filter so they're going to have the cleanest water possible. I change the water, like, every two weeks. Uh, I get special food for them. I get a heater to make sure it's the right temperature for goldfish. And I do everything I can to try to make sure this tank is healthy and these fish are flourishing. And a little time goes by, and I look... It's like, I only see four of these minnows. Then a little more time went by. I only see three of these minnows. And there's only two. And there's one. Then they all disappear. So then I'm left again with that one goldfish that I had purchased as a friend for the other one. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to buy any more. I'll just try to keep this one alive for a little while. And if I keep them alive for a little while, then I'll get some more. And sadly... After a few more weeks, that one died as well. And it drove me crazy because I did everything that I knew how to do to make this tank healthy and to flourish. And no matter what I did, they just languished. They died. I've had this happen with uh, gardening, too. Uh, I like to garden and, and take care of plants. And, you know, there's a lot of different factors that, that are involved with taking care of plants. You know, you need few elements, light. You need humidity. Um, you need water, you need fertilizer, and, you know, you, you might put one plant in one location, and for whatever reason, it's just doing really well. It's giving off new growth, it's nice and green and healthy, and then you put other plants in the same spot, and they're just kind of languishing, maybe not doing anything at all, or maybe just kind of dying. And then you try to figure out, what are those what, what's causing it to be like it is? I mean, is it too much light? Is it not enough light? Is it too much fertilizer? Is it not enough fertilizer? Is it too much water? Is it not enough water? And sometimes it's hard to figure out what are those factors that make plants or make aquariums flourish. I think human beings have always been kind of fascinated with the human question of what is it that makes human beings flourish? What is it that makes human beings live full and satisfying lives. And that's, I think, what we're going to talk about, what this passage kind of answers today. What are the elements that make uh, human flourishing possible? And I think it's vitally important because that's what, all we, what we all want. We all want human flourishing, want live, to live lives that are full, satisfied, and complete. And the ancient Hebrews actually had a word to describe uh, this kind of flourishing, this kind of wholeness, and they described it as shalom. Cornelius Plantinging Jr. describes Shalom this way. He describes it as the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far, be, far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's about human flourishing. That's the longing of all of our souls, is that we and those around us would flourish into all that God has made us to be. And so in this passage, I think there's three things we learn about human flourishing. The first thing we learn about human flourishing is that the world believes that having power brings about human flourishing. 
The world believes that having power brings about human flourishing. So we ended last week at the end of chapter 14, and then from chapter 14 to chapter 16, there's a list of a lot of different kings of Israel and Judah. And just as an aside, uh, after Solomon's death, uh, it, the nation of Israel proper was separated into two nations, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. So they're separated. So as you look in the Bible with chapter 14 and chapter 16, uh, you'll say uh, kings of Judah and kings of Israel. And the thing that kind of ties almost all of them together except for one is that they're all evil. They're all bad. They all lead the people away from God. And then we get to the end of chapter 16, we get to King Ahab, and it says that he was the worst of any of them. And that's really hard to imagine because we've already looked at some kings who really went astray from the Lord. But Ahab is worse than any of them. And, but King Ahab presents the road that the world would expect would promote human flourishing. He has everything that you think you would need to be satisfied, to be happy. He has an incredible amount of power. He takes a wife from the nation, someone who he thought would make him happy. He builds an altar to the Canaanite god Baal, who is the god of the clouds, the rain, and the winds, and fertility. He had everything that his heart desired, everything he thought would satisfy his soul. He had power, he had wealth, he had women, he had a family, he had a religious authority, and yet his life is kind of languishing. His life is kind of wasting away. We see first that his family is wasting away. Uh, we see that he tries to build the city of Jericho, uh, describes it in the end of chapter 16. And if you go back to the time of the conquest when Joshua went and led the people to conquer the city of Jericho, uh, Joshua pronounced a curse on the city of Jericho, and he said, whoever rebuilds this city, because it was an evil city, whoever rebuilds this city, they'll do it at the cost of their firstborn son. And it says at the end of chapter 16 that Ahab builds this city at the cost of his firstborn as well as his youngest son. Now, we don't know why they died exactly. It may have been that the, he offered them as sacrifices to the gods. It was very common in the ancient Near East, especially uh, with the worship of Baal, for there to be child sacrifices. So he may have offered them to the gods, and his family life is withering away. And his quest for power is going to cost him the life of his two sons. And then further, you have this prophet named Elijah. And Elijah is interesting because he just kind of appears on the scene. We don't know a lot of, about him. It says in the text where he's, that he is a Tishbite from Tishbe. But we don't know a lot about him as he enters the scene. He just kind of appears on the scene. And he tells Ahab that God is going to withhold the rain except for at his word. And, and that's clearly intentional because, again, Baal was the god of the rain. And God is trying to, to demonstrate to Ahab that Baal is not the one who controls the wind and the rain. He's not the one who's in charge of all of these things. It's me, and I'm going to speak this, uh, make this happen through my prophet. So you see in this story contrast between images of life, health, and flourishing, and then death and withering. Ahab, the one who has all power, who we think would have it all together, who would live a satisfying life, his life is weathering away. His sons are dead. His nation is experiencing famine. And there's an emptiness and a barrenness. Meanwhile, God's prophet is flourishing. A widow is flourishing. And it's clear in this passage right at the onset uh, that 
God is the source of human flourishing. That's not about how much power or how, much, how many possessions we have. It's about a relationship with God. He's the one who brings about human flourishing. In John chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, the word of God, uh, John writes this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So before we go any further, it's abundantly clear that Jesus is the key to experiencing human flourishing. It's not found by power or possessions or by anything else that this world has to offer. And so that's the first thing we see about human flourishing. The second thing we see about human flourishing is that God provides an oasis in the midst of a desert. God provides an oasis in the midst of the desert. The nation of Israel is experiencing a drought. There's no food, no water. They're getting scarce. And yet, in the midst of that, God's servant is dwelling by a brook, and he ha he's getting fed in a very unusual way. The ravens are coming and feeding him. Now, back in the wilderness wanderings, remember how uh, the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they didn't have any food, and God provided them with, with manna from heaven, and they received that once a day. Now, here in this passage, God's prophet is not only receiving bread, but he's receiving meat as well, and he's receiving it twice a day. And, and I think just it's kind of interesting that sometimes that the ways that God provides for us, they're just kind of laughable sometimes. I mean, just think about this scene of birds bringing him food. You know, and God's probably thinking to himself, well, Instacart wouldn't be invented for a few thousand years. What other way is he going to bring food to Elijah? But here's the reality. I think that when we're in a desert, when we're experiencing something difficult, the enemy wants us to focus on the desert, but God wants us to focus on his provision. The enemy wants to, us to focus on the desert, but God wants us to focus on his provision. And, and I think that we all have deserts in our lives and maybe one or more areas of our lives. Some of us feel like we're maybe in a spiritual desert. Maybe we feel like we're far from God. Maybe we feel like God doesn't hear our prayers anymore. Maybe our souls kind of feel heavy, burdened. Some of us are in a relational desert. Some of us long for a spouse, and yet every door we go down, door shuts. Some of us are in a marriage that feels like a desert. Some of us are in a financial desert. Some of us are struggling to pay the bills. We don't know where the money is going to come from that we need. Some of us are in an emotional desert, feel the weight of anxiety and depression, and there's an emptiness inside. And I believe here's what the enemy does. He comes to us and he says, look at the desert. Look at your bank account. There's not much in there. Look at your marriage. There's not much life in there. Look at your emotional state. It's not going too well. Look at your spiritual state. God has abandoned you. And it's the oldest trick in the book, something that Satan has been doing since the beginning of time. And we see it back in the Garden of Eden where Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he says, look at what you don't have. In other words, look at the desert. I mean, God has put them in a garden. Yet Satan says, look at what you don't have. He says, this garden that you, that you think that you have, it's really a desert. God's trying to keep the best from you. We know that Adam and Eve bought into that lie, and the result was, in essence, the garden that they lived in, the human flourishing 
that was a part of their existence was no more. And the garden started to become a desert. God, on the other hand, he says, look at me and find that I'm enough for you. Stop looking at the desert. Look at me and you'll find that I am enough. Isaiah 55, 1-2 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God's provisions are enough for any desert that we might find ourselves in. But that's just kind of our personal life. But even bigger than our personal lives, I believe that our world is the desert. Our world is a place of emptiness. Evil was put on display this past week, again with the invasion of Ukraine. It's a desert of sexual confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman. It's a desert of greed where the rich exploit the poor, where there's more slaves uh, alive today than there were, was during the, the African slave trade. It's a desert where often evil goes unpunished and those who do good suffer. Our world is a far cry from flourishing and really it's the opposite. It's languishing. It's dying. The world is kind of wasting away. And our hearts were made for something more. Our hearts were made for a place of flourishing. God created us, put us in the Garden of Eden, put our forefathers in the Garden of Eden. He said, be fruitful and multiply. It was a place of flourishing, a place where things grew, a place of, of fulfillment and joy. That's what we were made for. And we know as believers, that's the place where we're going. The scriptures start with the garden in the book of Genesis, and then it ends with the garden in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, 1 to 5 says this, Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the future for the people of God, a garden, a place of flourishing. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. We haven't experienced that reality and we pray uh, with the, the, the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that day when justice reigns, when human beings flourish into all that God made them to be. But we're not there yet. And I believe that until we get there, I believe that God has called his church, not just our church, not a building, the people of God, he's called us to be an oasis in the midst of the desert. He's called the church to be a place of flourishing where hearts and souls find rest. See, we might not be able to change the world, but we can show the world what change looks like. Christians of yesteryear used to cry out, let's change the desert. Let's change the culture for Christ. That was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. I think that ship has sailed. There's a desert all around us, and I believe that God is calling us to be an oasis in the midst of that desert. We have different priorities, different values, different ways uh, of living, 
And I believe that eventually many people who maybe now see the church as archaic or closed-minded will one day find out that the church is life-giving. Again, not talking about a building or an organization, the people of God. As the world becomes disillusioned with the greed, sexual confusion, and emptiness of our culture, I believe that they're going to be, discover something attractive in us, something life-giving, something flourishing and attractive. Because the truth is, if we're living lives that are honoring to God, if we're living lives of faith, it's going to promote human flourishing. I mean, God gives us directions. God gives us uh, commands because he wants us to flourish. He wants us to become all that he made us to be. And so we need to be that counterculture where we're an oasis in the midst of the desert, where we show the love of Christ to those around us. Just kind of as an aside, we need to make sure that as believers, we do everything that we can to build up the body of Christ, to build up those around us. There's repeated warnings from Paul especially uh, in the scriptures not to allow backbiting and negativity to stunt the church's growth. 2 Corinthians 2, 20-21 says this, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you, and I may, and I, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So let's say I'm planting a garden, and say I'm planting tomato plants, and I start them from seeds, and the plant starts to grow up, and as the plant starts to grow up, I just start pruning it, but kind of pruning it in a very haphazard manner. As it starts to grow up and get buds, I cut the buds off. I cut off a leaf, cut off a stem, and as, as soon as the plant grows up more, I do the same thing. Now, if I do that, most likely the plant isn't going to produce many tomatoes if at all, and it might even die. And I think that's kind of a picture of what happens when we engage in infighting, when we engage in gossip, jealousy, pride, negativity. It's like we're cutting each other down. And God has created this church, brought this church together as the body of Christ. And I'm talking about the church, again, the people of God, not specifically I hope, but God has brought the church together He's called us to flourish. When we gossip, when we have pride or negativity, it's like we're cutting down what God has made. And we can't be all that God calls us to be. God has called us to be an oasis in the midst of the desert. There's a writer by the name of James, Jane Garmy, and uh, she wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago about a man named Kenneth Helplin, professor of landscape architecture at the University of Oregon. And he purchased this old picture, and in this picture, uh, he saw, it depicted a scene of shelters in French military trenches surrounded by gardens. And he did a, a lot of research, and he discovered that gardens were often created in times of war. He found that gardens flanked the Western Front during World War I, Jewish ghettos during World War II, German POW camps. Japanese-American internment camps in the U.S., and war-torn areas of Sarajevo. More recently, gardens were seen sprouting up in the deserts of Iraq. In the midst of difficult circumstances, these gardens represented survival, hope, life. 
he wrote this, they, they're an ob, obdurate refusal to give in to the horror of the hell so close at hand. He calls them defiant gardens. I believe that's what God is calling us to be in the midst of a world that's a desert. He's calling us to be defiant gardens. An oasis in the midst of the desert that provides hope to those around us. The final thing we see about human flourishing in this passage is that faith is required to flourish. Faith is required to flourish. So the brook that Elijah is drinking from dries up, and uh, then he goes and moves to a place called Zarephath, which was under the command of Sidon. And now Sidon was a part of Canaan. And back in the days of the conquest, God commanded the people of Israel to go and kind of wipe out the inhabitants of Sidon because they were extremely evil. Uh, they did things like child sacrifices. And Israel was disobedient to God. They didn't destroy the inhabitants of Sidon. And so they became kind of a stumbling block for Israel. And it says in the text in the end of chapter 16 that Jezebel, the evil wife of Ahab, uh, was from Sidon. And Sidon was kind of the, the center of idol worship, the center of the worship of Baal. It was kind of the pagan capital of the area. So it's interesting first that Elisha would go there, that he'd go to a place that was under the command of Sidon. But also, it's interesting that who he goes to. It says in the text that God has commanded a widow to provide for him. Now what's interesting about that is in the ancient world, widows didn't provide for people. Widows were provided for. Someone who was a widow didn't have a means to provide for themselves, and so people had to take care of widows. And yet in this context, God calls a widow to take care of the prophet. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath. He meets this widow, and it's really a gut-wrenching scene. She's gathering up sticks. She's gathering, she has just a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, and she says, I'm going home. I'm going to make a couple cakes for me and my son. And we are dying. This is probably going to be our last meal. It's a real gut-wrenching scene. And Elijah responds by saying, hey, make me a cake first. Now, if, if that was me, and I didn't have any food except for a little bit of flour, and my son was dying, I would have a hard time giving up that last one of those cakes to a complete stranger. But Elijah says, give me a cake, then make a cake for yourself and for your son, and your supply is never going to run out. And amazingly, she does it. She gives from what she has, even though what she has is so small, and God blesses her in an amazing way. And the oil and the flour never run out. doesn't matter how many cakes she makes, the supply is endless. I think the same thing is true in regards to our relationship with God. That God says to us, I have incredible things in store for you. I'm going to provide for you in incredible ways, but in order for me to do that, you've got to let go of what's in your hands. You've got to give it up. And when we do that, we find that his grace is sufficient, that his love is a well that never runs, down, that runs dry. We have trouble giving up that control, I think, sometimes. I mean, we think we have to hold on to it. And there's things in our life that we think that we have control over, we don't really have that much control over. But if we're going to experience God's fullness for us, we need to give up what we've been holding on to. We need to come to God and say, God, I've been holding on to my finances for too long. 
God, I want to give them back to you. God, here's my marriage. God, here's my singleness. God, here's my emotional health. Here's my sexuality. Here's my family. Here's my heart. God's calling us to be an oasis in the midst of the desert, but, and he'll provide for us in incredible ways, but in order to do that, we need to open up our hands to him. We need to give up whatever we're holding on to to experience all that God wants us to be. Writer and pastor uh, Matt Woodley shares a story about um, how when he was 11 years old, he'd go to this community pool, and at this community pool, they would have this really uh, high diving board. It was like 35 steps to get to the top of it, and he had been going to this pool for several years, about five years, and he had never, never had any desire to go up on this diving board. He was terrified of it. And every year he would see, you know, people go up there and they'd dive in and go down into the water and then they'd come up and be fine. But he was terrified. But as he was getting older, he saw that some of his friends started going up on this high dive. It seemed like everyone started to do it, even the people that he didn't expect. So he started to get a little embarrassed that he was afraid to do it. He describes what happened this way. He said, on a humid day in July, with my stomach reeling and my knees wobbling, I climbed the 35 steps into thin air. As I walked out on the plank, everything within me said, you fool, turn around and climb back down. You can still live. But when I started to backpedal and looked over my shoulder, I saw the line of friends, older kids, and girls chuckling. I knew I must jump. Creeping to the edge of the plank, I looked over the edge, and I finally let go and jumped. Down I plunged, hitting the water like a stone, sinking lower and lower into my watery grave. So this is how they die, I thought. Some people hit the water and never come back up. They get sucked through the grate in the bottom of the pool and get turned into chlorine. But then, surprise, I came up again. And I was alive. I was wet and dazed, but utterly alive. I was not only alive, but transformed, liberated, and renewed. I shook my head of wet hair and laughed. I had... To I let go of everything and lived to tell about it. I was more alive than ever. I had tasted the joy of surrender. Sometimes it's hard to give up control. Sometimes it's a scary thing. But if we're going to experience human flourishing, if we're going to be the people that God has called us to be, we need to give up control. So what are you holding on to today? Maybe there's some here or some maybe listening online who've never given up the reins of their life to God. You've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're holding on to the direction of your life, and maybe today, in this moment, you'd open up your life to God and say, God, here's my life. I don't want to do it my own way anymore. I want to do it your way. Others of us, maybe we're believers, and we started to hold on to things in our life. It could be a number of things. But here's the reality. If we're holding on to it, it's not going to flourish. If we're trying to make it grow in our own strength, it's not going to flourish, no matter what area of life it is. Whether it's our career, our finances, our kids, our marriage, these things can only flourish when we open up our hands and give them to God. So what are you holding on to? What am I holding on to? And what do you need to open up your hands to God to today? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you care about us. We thank you that we can bring our hopes, our dreams, 
areas of our life that we think that we can control. We think that we know best, Lord. We thank you that we can bring those to you, knowing that they can only flourish when we surrender them to you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who maybe doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they turn from the direction they're going and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, for all the rest of us, Lord, we all have this tendency to take what we know is yours, to take the reins of our life, to take the reins of different areas of our life. Lord, help us to find joy and surrender and to give every area of our life to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you.